Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Russian voters go to the polls Sunday. The outcome is obvious, but we'll think through what this election says about Russia. Adidas now makes shoes made of plastic pulled out of the ocean. We'll hear about the benefits and the downsides of upcycling. Ever meet someone who helps keep up an intercontinental ballistic missile? You will towards the end of the hour. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. admit to not getting too fired up about the Russian elections. Only certain candidates get to run. The results are a foregone conclusion. But after looking into it a bit, bit, I'll admit it looks a little entertaining. The debates are a lot more lively than ours. Here's a clip from the first presidential debate where the candidates got into it over whether or not Vladimir Zhirinovsky was fomenting violence at protests in 1993. Towards the end there, the uh, opposition or the politician Ksenia Sobchuk, she's a reality star also. She throws a glass of water on Vladimir Zhirinovsky and he says to her, she's an idiot. Take her away from here. And Sobchak says, calm yourself. Could you please remove this prostitute, says Zhirinovsky. And the moderator says the Electoral Commission decides who runs for president. And Zhirinovsky says, get rid of this trash. She's a whore's whore. With me to talk about the Russian elections is Anna Nemsova. She's a Moscow-based correspondent for the Daily Beast covering Russia and the former Soviet states. Thanks a lot for joining me, Anna. Thank you, Jerome. Well, you know, when I looked at this um, debate and saw this kind of reality TV thing going, of course, we've got a reality TV president in this country, but they seem to take it to another level. They want people to be engaged. Is that what is being uh, ginned up here? Well, there are several agendas. Last night, uh, Russia saw another debate. And once again, Ksenia Sapchak, the only woman running for the election um, from the opposition, uh, she left the debate. She just walked out because she could not stand um, this rude, uh, brutal attacks. People interrupted her. The other candidates interrupted her constantly. So she started crying and left in tears, left the studio. Wow. See, Russia, Russia can see this emotional scandals on, on TV, and um, ordinary people say, so Putin must be the only sane person in this mess. Or some people, I, I was in Irkutsk in December, um, that is a city in Siberia, and my driver said, if not for Putin, we would have had a war already. He is um, protecting Russia from the war. And I asked, uh, a war with who? I don't know. With somebody. So uh, Putin is seen as somebody, you know, he's been seen 
as somebody uh, who could uh, keep Russia stable for 18 years. And he's enjoying a popularity rate, approval rate of more than 80 percent. So there is no question that he's going to win on Sunday. Now, the candidacy of Ksenia Sabchuk, she is uh, someone who is a reality star and... She was thought that, you know, Putin saw her as, a, you know, a stand-in for Alexei Navalny, who was is the true opposition guy who wants to boycott the thing. And this splits the opposition. There's all these conspiracy theories about her. But uh, what has her candidacy ended up meaning to this election? Well, see, uh, people think different things about Ksenia Sapchak. She's young. She's only 33. Uh, and uh, her father was a famous Democrat, Putin's teacher. So uh, at first, many in the opposition criticized her for uh, making a deal with the Kremlin for being some sort of uh, Putin's um, agenda, you know, a part of of the play, part of the script. But then she started traveling around Russia, and I covered her campaign. I traveled with her to a small provincial town of Vladimir, and I saw her speech in front of the audience of young people. She makes very strong examples. And she says things that no, no other candidates can say. She says that the Crimea should be given back to, to Ukraine, for instance. And this is a very unpopular statement. Or she says, look, Putin promised us uh, six years ago that at least five Russian universities will make it to uh, 100 best universities in the world. And now we have only one Moscow State University among 100 best universities in the world, or they promised us six years ago that Russian economy will be at the top, uh, at least among 10 countries, or that the business environment will be friendly. But today, the business environment in Russia is created as uh, behind a little country of Georgia, or a small country of Estonia. It is worse in Russia for for businessmen to invest money and to feel safe. So. Uh, all the strong examples that she's been making, they changed many, many people's um, opinion about her. So she's ended up playing a role where she's able to get opposition ideas into the campaign, but it doesn't make any difference because everybody's really scared about all these wars that we might get into? That's true. That's true. But, you know, things in Russia are much more complicated than they might seem. Um, as you could probably notice the Kremlin has been nervous um, for this past year. Uh, police were arresting uh, the opposition activists uh, and beating some. Uh, people were detained and arrested even for posting something very critical online, on social media. So there's been a lot of pressure on the opposition. It means that the um, officials, the authorities are very nervous about um, opposite views, critical views. And uh, today, uh, the, the job is to get people physically to the polls, because in 2016, for instance, less than 50 percent, only 47 percent of Russians showed up at the polls. And as for the Moscow elections for the district uh, last fall, they were on 30 percent. Um, people do not go to the elections. People think that, OK, um, undoubtedly, un- unquestionably, um, Putin is going to win the election. Uh, why would we go? <laughs> Nothing can be changed by our vote. So um, I heard today at the funeral of a very famous artist, Alek Tabakov, 
uh, in line. People were thousands of people were waiting in line to say goodbye to that actor, and many said, I, I'm, "I'm not going to 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 vote on Sunday. It, it wouldn't make any difference." So this is this is the opinion among many intelligent people in Moscow, and of course, Moscow is very different from provinces. Uh, we'll see um, how many people physically turn turn out um, what the turnout is going to be on Sunday. And, and if you're Vladimir Putin, you would like to see a turnout of 50%? Is that good? Is 60% your goal? Oh, more the, the, the more the better. The more, the more um, and you know what is interesting uh, in this, during this last week before the election, um, a very famous uh, pro-Putin um, TV host, Kisilov, posted on, on social media two series of a documentary film about Vladimir Putin. In the first series, we um, hear from Vladimir Putin in an interview a story about uh, a terrorist attack uh, that only he knew about, uh, a planned terrorist attack on Olympic Games in Sochi. Um, that there was a plane, it turns out, that was flying from Kharkiv to Sochi with a bomb on the plane to attack the uh, opening ceremony. But then, you know, that, that, that operation was canceled and uh, the Russian military did not shoot down that airplane with 100 people on board. But you know, Putin tells this story now, so many years later. And then in the second episode, we hear from Vladimir Putin that during the hostage crisis, the theater hostage crisis in Moscow many years ago, terrorists were actually planning to bring the hostages to the Kremlin, to the Red Square, and execute um, the hostages right there. So no, again, so no matter what, he's the hero. Right. I mean, there's something scary, something really, really dangerous that Russia has been facing. Russia has been under lots of threats. And Vladimir Putin is our savior who can protect us from, from the crisis, from the wars. Anna Nemsova is a Moscow-based correspondent for the Daily Beast covering Russia and the former Soviet states. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking a bit about what's happening in the Russian elections, which are Sunday. My pleasure, Carol. Thank you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This era of late capitalism has made us think of how to be ethical consumers. For the first installment of the Worldview series Dollar Vote, here's journalist Liz Lazar. The Trump presidency, marked by Orwellian duplicity and recklessness and weekly constitutional crises, has ushered in an unintended golden age of political engagement, a sense of civic emergency that's unlike any in modern American history. The outpouring of dissent has infiltrated every aspect of American life. Even what had been the most stubbornly apolitical spaces have become cultural battlegrounds to combat what the majority in the country believe to be a toxic cocktail of tax-based wealth-grabbing, race-baiting, misogyny, xenophobia, militarism, not to mention a troubling aspiration toward autocratic rule fueled by the propaganda machine of a foreign adversary. What had previously been the most sentimental symbols of nonpartisan American patriotism, like Sunday football, you can see Kaepernick, or the Golden Globe Awards, when that new day finally dawns. have become vehicles of protest. But perhaps the most critical and surprising sector of society to join the chorus of resistance, and one which historically has also been the most aggressively unpolitical, is the business community which, before Trump and with few mainstream exceptions, enjoyed a neutral realm, 
If the money was green, why rock the boat? But customers have changed dramatically in these times, and companies are responding by the seat of their pants. In the Trump era, businesses can no longer afford to not take a stand should they risk alienating huge portions of their customer base. Consider how the most influential CEOs, including Merck, General Motors, IBM, Intel, Under Armour, along with many more, felt pressure to quit Trump's elite business council after the president failed to earnestly condemn a white supremacist demonstration in Charlottesville, Virginia, in which, standing in a gilded lobby of Trump Tower, he blamed on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it. For the violence, equating neo-Nazis with those who protest them. A similar CEO rebellion rose up in response to the travel ban. Apple, Facebook, Starbucks, Amazon, Tesla, and many more, all speaking out against the president's executive order to block immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries. Given the so-called CEO president built his dealmaker image on having close ties with business leaders, the defections of the most powerful and influential C-suite players have not only delivered a serious blow to the administration's credibility, but have created a new normal of consumer-based political activism that has real consequences in global culture. That some of these companies have power and resources that exceed those of small countries. Their ability to influence policy in daily life is immeasurable. And the moral demand on corporations is only growing. A pre-election 2015 study from Nielsen found that 66% of global consumers are willing to pay more for sustainable, responsible brands. That number jumped significantly in a 2017 Cone Communication study that reported 87% of consumers said they'd be more inclined to purchase a product because a company advocated for a social or environmental issue they cared about. The numbers are even higher among millennials. What this means is now more than ever, the American people are determined to use all their resources, not only their votes and their voices, but also their hard-earned money to protect their democracy. 2017 was the year of subjecting powerful individuals, politicians, celebrities to moral scrutiny. The public is increasingly concerned with not just what type of professionals, but also what type of people are presiding over the public well-being and delivering their news and entertainment, making their cars and their sneakers. The same way voters don't want to be represented by predators or bullies, and nor do viewers care to watch their shows on television or go to their movies. Similarly, most Americans don't want to ride in the cabs or drink the Kool-Aid produced by corporations that mistreat their employees or the earth. But just as powerful Hollywood types have been peddling feminist-flavored products with one hand and diminishing women with the other, so too are some businesses pandering to a newly concerned public with greenwashed, socially progressive branding meant to mask what may be more shadowy supply chains and questionable treatment of employees. Where is the business value in tree hugging? In light of this unprecedented, public-driven moral demand on institutions and corporations, Worldview has developed Dollar Vote, a recurring segment that will help listeners decide which businesses and products most reflect their values. And since spring is the time of the year when everyone likes to get their workout back on track, we're going to kick the inaugural report off with a review of one of the most pervasive and beloved athletic brands by young and old alike and everyone in between. We'll be looking at Adidas and sizing up how they score in the corporate responsibility game. Full disclosure, like hundreds of millions of people, I've been wearing the iconic three stripes since I was a kid. From the south side of Chicago to the Yeezy runways of Paris to the favelas of Bahia, people are wearing the sneakers. 
They're extremely comfortable and they have street cred and international swag. That's why Adidas sold more sneakers in 2017 than any other company and why they're not going anywhere. An example of it, but now I have to create for myself. <laughs> it's not about borders, gender, a race. I ain't trying to stay in my lane. I'm trying to strike white iron. Their brand is built on images of racial and global diversity and a love of the earth. Ads feature images from the hood to vast endangered landscapes and patterns muse from Native American and African tribal designs. Aesthetic inspirations from parts of the planet our current president might be inclined to describe with vulgar expletives. Meantime, people in Norway cop Adidas too. What I wanted to know is to what extent does the company's production values mirror its image? If we've learned anything from 2017, it's that too often ugly means are behind beautiful movies. My expectations were low. The apparel industry accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions and remains the second largest industrial polluter, coming second after oil. Given shoes are a huge part of that and Adidas sold more sneakers than anyone else last year, they have a huge role to play in making the industry more sustainable. They produce hundreds of millions of sneakers every year, most of which depend on virgin plastic, which their press release has stated they want to completely eliminate from their supply chain. Toward that ultimate goal, they've got a running start in the way of their collaboration with the conservation organization Parlay for the Oceans. With the partnership of Parlay, Adidas has updated one of their most popular shoes, the Ultra Boost, with yarns made out of upcycled plastic ocean waste collected from beaches and coastal communities in the Maldives. To learn more about their sneakers made from ocean garbage, I spoke with Jochen Deniger, brand executive at the headquarters in Germany. Hi, Julian. Hi, Elizabeth. In 2015, Adidas was invited to the United Nations to introduce the concept. We were invited into the UN General Assembly Hall, where we actually presented the first prototype of an ocean plastic shoe. The upper was made from nylon intercepted by Sea Shepherd from illegal fishnets and partly by polyester that Pali collected. The project started very small, what some critics might describe as more a PR exercise than a meaningful commitment to the environment. The first drop, actually, we didn't even sell. We made 50 pairs. Consumer needed to submit a video with a pledge on how they're going to protect the oceans and find plastic pollution. It was a shoe that you couldn't buy. You needed to earn it. But what started as what could be construed as a greenwashing experiment became a real game changer once Adidas released the Parlay product on the soccer pitch with recycled kits made for Real Madrid and FC Baron. Yes, that was our first event when we had Parley on the field of play, which I think was really great to see these first division clubs playing in ocean plastic. To me, that's definitely a special moment in the Parley history. While a few Cristiano Ronaldo jerseys do not offset a multi-billion dollar supply chain, it was symbolically meaningful enough to create major consumer demand very quickly. Adidas returned to the UN the following summer. That's also when we started to say that we want to do a million pair of these shoes. And we actually came back a year later and had the first commercial version of it. That first year, Adidas released 7,000 pairs of the Parlay product, which sold out almost immediately, particularly among younger buyers. It's been the 17 to 30-year-olds that cared about the planet, and now it's actually becoming relevant for all age groups. Once the Parlay sneaker became commercially available, Adidas couldn't keep them stocked. The Ultra Boost running shoe, for example, was the best-selling shoe in our first four weeks after the opening of our Fifth Avenue New York flagship store. 
This past year, Adidas returned to the United Nations to report on the Parlay project. And then in the third year, we actually came back with the fully commercialized version of the Ultra Boost shoe that we then sold in different variants over a million pairs of. Adidas, like any for-profit company, is mostly concerned with their bottom line, and we as customers control that with our purchasing power. For those loyal Adidas customers like myself who also care about the earth, buying their Parlay line of sneakers, available mostly online, is a good compromise, and it sends a message, a vote, if you will, to the company, which does over $20 billion in net sales a year, the lion's share of which is sourced with virgin plastic. But depending on public response, what is now a growing line of a million shoes could be hundreds of millions of shoes. And even overwhelm Adidas conventionally produced lines, which, given the sheer scale of their market share, we'd have a much cleaner ocean to show for it. That's it. Ocean plastic has to be sorted into uniform pieces and eventually melted down. The process is time-consuming and expensive. And while experts say that upcycled products are effective in raising awareness about marine debris, they also say it fosters a continued dependence on plastic, which ideally would be replaced with truly sustainable materials. We're producing more single-use plastic every year, and much of it is ending up in the ocean. It's even entered our food chain as plankton are eating microplastics. There's no doubt projects like Adidas Parlay help to clean up the environment. But if the company wants to take it a step further, they could take a page from the Patagonia playlist, who discourages their customers from buying new stuff by offering to restore their old products to their original splendor. Because in the end, a pair of shoes you don't buy is a pair of shoes that never get made. And a pair of shoes that never get made never wash up in an ocean. And that was Liz Lazar with the first installment of Dollar Vote, a worldview series that investigates issues of ethical consumption. Listen for the next Dollar Vote on companies that have pulled out of agreements with the NRA. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Have you ever met someone who helps keep up an intercontinental ballistic missile? You are about to. The first female lead engineer in the supply chain for U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles is with me. She's 28-year-old engineer Megan Jensen. She works at the Hill Air Force Base in Utah. She is here in town to speak at Lumity's annual dinner and student STEM fair. They encourage STEM work in high school students. It's great to meet you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think most people don't really know much about intercontinental ballistic missiles, but they are the the great big rockets that go to the other side of the earth, essentially with nuclear weapons on them. Uh, um, what's it? What what is one like if you stand there next to it? Um, well, if you're up to a next to a full up one, it is very large and intimidating, um, but. You know, when we remember what they're here for and they're here to deter war, uh, it's it's pretty awesome to be next to them. 
I read the book Command and Control, which was uh, which is about our uh, intercontinental ballistic missile system, and it describes a situation where the workers are. It's like you've always got to have this rocket ready. You've always got to have the rocket ready, and you've got to do the same thing all the time. It's a little technical. It's complicated, but it's also really repetitive and. Uh, you've got to do it just the right way, just the same every time. Is that is that what it's like to work on these? Um, a little bit. Uh, with the nature of being in a nuclear program, you have to be 100% correct 100% of the time. And so you have to make sure that everything is the same every time. And so, yeah, you, you take a lot of time to make sure that everything is correct every time you do it. How did you get into this line of work? I mentioned that you're the first female lead engineer in the supply chain of U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, I imagine you've got to have some encouragement to go into science. Yeah, I had I had a lot of encouragement um, when I was 15. In particular, we uh, my family built our family home, and me and my grandpa we wired the entire house together, and we did a bunch of other projects to to complete the home, and that was something that. Uh, I really showed me how interesting engineering was and how real world it was because I think a lot of times we we think of engineering as really out there and it's math and science and it's it's boring but really building that house with my grandpa and and understanding all of the the things that go into it uh, really helped me to pursue STEM. So in some ways it starts with family encouragement and, and an atmosphere of I can build this house. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so. I think, you know, encouragement from wherever you can get it, especially family is a big one and, and, you know, your teachers or leaders, wherever you may be in whatever organizations you participate in. How did you find yourself worming more into science-oriented classes? I always, interestingly enough, really enjoyed math. I know math gets a bad rap, but uh, one of the things that I was told early on, the the thing that makes math so cool is that math predicts the future. And you know exactly what's going to happen if you know the math behind it. And that made math and science so much more interesting to me after that. Explain your degrees and where you, how you got to where you are today. So I got a, a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Utah State University. I really, really enjoyed my classes. And towards my senior year there, I really fell in love with aerospace and aeronautics. And so I decided to go on and get a master's in aerospace engineering. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my master's degree. It, everything was so fascinating to, to learn about astrodynamics and, and all the things that go into that. And it was so much fun. Were your classes predominantly male in, you know, right then, already out of the box? Yeah, they were. Um, my uh, bachelor's degree, I was one of four female, and uh, in my master's degree, I was the only female graduating in my degree. What's that like? Um, <laughs> at first, it can be pretty intimidating. Um, I'm kind of used to it now, but... You know that's that's the reason that we're we're here and we're promoting these these STEM organizations so that we can get more, especially young women, into STEM so that they don't have to be the only girl in their classes. Um, and now you're in with real engineers working on aerocontainable kind of mm-hmm. and they're all male that you work with, basically. There's one other female in our organization. Um, we have right now. I think we're at twenty six, twenty seven, and there's one other female. Yeah. But I'm I'm the first female lead, so that's exciting. Why do you think women are discouraged from doing this, or it don't get there in any kind of numbers? 
Um, I think, you know, it, it's been shown that usually they drop out of these STEM-oriented classes in, in junior high and high school. And I think that, you know, it's, it's right when puberty hits. It's, and I think uh, my personal opinion is that girls don't think it's cool, and so they, dr- they drop out. And so we really need to, to promote and show them how awesome and how cool these jobs can be and so that they can continue and, and not listen to whatever uh, peer pressure they're, they're having. Now, um, you're wearing a leather jacket, kind of, and, and <laughs> yes. uh, you, I saw a picture of you where you had blue hair. Yes. <laughs> you've, you've had some blue hair. This doesn't prevent yes. you from working on intercontinental ballistic missiles. Not at all. Actually, when I uh, dyed my hair back brown, my boss was very sad to see the blue go. <laughs> he enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, do, uh, so do you think there's like a stereotype of um, what you've got to be to do this thing? Absolutely. I think there is absolutely a stereotype. And, you know, we need to show that that's not always true and break that stereotype, which is why, you know, I, I, I'm I, wearing pink pants and a leather jacket and I'll dye my hair whatever color I, I feel like and, and show that you can still have fun and be an engineer at the same time. Now, tonight you're at the Four Seasons at Lumity's annual dinner and st- Student Semp Fair. Um, what, what's your main message there? What do you want everybody to know? Um, my main message is, you know, first of all, for, for those that are wanting to go into STEM, you know, don't let anything dissuade you from pursuing whatever you're passionate about. And, and to everybody else, you know, we need to help encourage these young people to go into STEM careers because we really need more diversity in STEM and we, we need more innovators uh, in in our country. We are cutting off half the innovators if, if the, um, exactly. we only do boys. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Megan Jensen is uh, for the first female lead engineer in the supply chain for the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile System, and she works at Hill Air Force Base in Utah, and she's responsible for the upkeep of our some of our most important things on that we have in this country. Thanks a lot for joining us, and keep up the great work. Thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.